Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. I want to talk to you about what I call the power of a biblical whatever, showing us how we should approach these eight attitudes. Because you see, habits eat willpower for breakfast. When you learn to develop a habitual way of thinking and feeling and even behaving, you will find that willpower is needed less and less. And that's the way you need to see this series, guys, is that this has the power to free and liberate your attitude. So over the years, I've noticed a pretty clear and fascinating pattern among Christians and their general attitude, and it's this, that many Christians tend to lean either toward an overly negative view of life and circumstances, or Christians tend to lean toward a more overly positive view of life and circumstances. In other words, I'm suggesting that very few of us here today are balanced within the realm of known reality. That's what we're going to call it today, known reality. We think we are. We don't think we're overly negative. We don't think we're overly positive. But the reality is, is that we are and that we need better balance. I see this quite often when I interact with Christians who just got some potentially bad news about a crucial area of their life. That's the true revealer of attitude, by the way, how you initially receive bad news. That's a great revealer of your attitude. And so here's what happens. We saw something on the last mammogram or PSA test that concerns us, and we want to do a biopsy. And I'm telling you, some of you, when you get news like that, immediately think it's over. Here I come, Lord. I know it's going to be bad. I just know it. And you immediately go to the negative side of things. (laughs) But then there's others of us that conversely say, there's no way that I have cancer. No way. It's just not possible. I just know the result is going to be good. In fact, I've already claimed it in faith and it's bound up in heaven. I've heard Christians use phrases like that. And I think to myself, well, why? You could be setting yourself up for profound disappointment by being maybe overly positive. Or how about this scenario? We just want to announce that our company is going to be merging with another company and some of the roles are going to be eliminated. And again, some of you need your right to this. It's over. I need to get my resume updated. They certainly won't keep me. I got to put my house on the market, trade in the car, and adopt the kids out. I mean, that's what we tend to think. And again, you go right to the worst case scenario when it comes to to that. And then I love it. The very positive people among us have this response. Well, there's no way they'd ever let go of me. I mean, why would they? They know what they've got. I got nothing to worry about. And then you're let go. And though some of you are saying, Jamie, I don't go to either extreme, here's the deal. There's certainly shades of gray in all of this, right? And I'm not suggesting that you personally are, the, are a poster child for either extreme, but think about it with me. We tend to lean, and I think lean unhealthily, to either an overly negative view of life or conversely an overly positive view of life. And what the Bible is going to challenge us to today is to strive for a better balance in what we're going to call known reality. 
known reality. So as we continue in our series on attitude, this is our main point, and that is that we need to learn to live and think in light of known reality, both transcendent and personal reality. And you're saying, what do you mean by that? Uh, Let me repeat it again, and then we're going to break all this down. You're going to get it within the next 30 minutes. We need to learn to live and think in light of known reality. And here's the key, transcendent as well as personal reality. Uh, So what do we mean? Uh, Well, you might remember that our theme verse for this series, as we talked about earlier, is Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, where we are challenged to develop our attitude along eight lines of thinking that we're going to look at in this series, everything from truth to honor, to purity, to excellence. And it's fascinating how this list begins. It says this, finally, brothers, whatever is true, think about these things, whatever is true. I need you to focus on that word true. This is the first attitude that we're challenged with here. In the original Greek language that the New Testament was written in, it's the Greek word aletheis. And back in ancient times, this word literally meant, now get this, to unhide, to unconceal. It meant to disclose what really is, whether it be a body of knowledge that teaches us something, or even the truth behind a personal experience. So, for instance, Plato used this word, Plato and the Greeks. And Plato used this word to distinguish between what he called true and genuine, aletheis, versus that which is a reflection or an appearance, that which is only appearing to be true. And so in the 25 plus times that this word is used in the New Testament, we translate it usually that which is true, because it means that which is true, that which is real, that which is honest, that which has been disclosed, unveiled, seen for what it really is. And this brings us to what is most fascinating about the usage of this word in the New Testament, and that is that it can refer to either transcendent truth or personal truth. What we call transcendent truth or personal truth. What's the difference? Well, transcendent truth is defined by philosophers and theologians as truth that is unaffected by time and space. It's truth that is grounded in the transcendent, that which is above and outside of us, that which transcends what simply the human mind can conjure up by itself or what the human body can experience by itself. And because it's truth that is out there to be discovered or revealed, truth that is not affected by time and space, it's truth that is absolute and unchanging. In other words, it's true whether we recognize it or not. It's even true whether we believe it or not. Why? Because it's truth that is out there by the very nature of being transcendent, if you will, above us. And the way that most theologians and experts on religion use this word, or this phrase transcendent truth, is that it refers to truth that comes from who? God. You guessed it. In other words, this really is a theological, philosophical concept to try to describe truth that resides in God himself that he chooses to reveal to us. That's transcendent truth. 
And so when Christians talk about transcendent truth, we're obviously talking about truth that comes to us from the Trinitarian God revealed through the scriptures over a 1500 year period of time that we have since taken then and developed doctrines around that become very, very dear to us because they are transcendent truth that comes from God. You're saying, give me an example. There's lots of them. Transcendent truths are truths like the existence and reality of God, the goodness of God, the unchanging and sovereign nature of God, the fallenness of humankind. That's a transcendent truth because God revealed that to us. The mercy and forgiveness of God and so much more. And from a Christian perspective, transcendent truth then is rock solid, it's firm, it's unchanging, and it's the kind of truth that we base our very lives upon. And the reason that this is so important to grasp when it comes to our attitude is that this is how that word aletheis is used many times in the New Testament. We're challenged here in Philippians 4.8 to have our attitude be one of that which is true, aletheis. And what you need to know is that many of the instances and in how this word is used in the New Testament are speaking to transcendent truth. So, for instance, in Matthew 22, verse 16, some of the Pharisees send their disciples to Jesus along with some Roman leaders, and it says this, and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, teacher... We know that you are true, aletheis, and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances. Don't miss what's going on there. Now that you understand transcendent truth, that's what this is referring to here, that, that the Pharisees and the Herodians are saying, Jesus, you speak what is true, the way of God, transcendent truth that comes to us. And then Jesus said the same thing about himself in John 8, verse 14. He says, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is, say it with me, true, aletheis, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. So again, don't miss this. Jesus is saying here that I came from a different place, I'm going to a different place. For our purposes this morning, a transcendent place that transcends time and space. And that which I share with you is transcendent stuff. Peter says the same thing. He says, by Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true aletheis grace of God. So stand firm in it. So he's saying what we wrote to you has come from God himself. And then John says the same thing in 1 John 2.8. At the same time, he says, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, a commandment to love each other, by the way, which is true, aletheis, in him. So don't miss this. I know it's heady stuff for some of us, but it's really important. True in him, meaning it comes from God. It's true in Christ. It's transcendent by its very nature. And so at the very least, when Philippians 4.8 tells us to ground our attitude in that which is true, aletheis, it's telling us to ground our thinking in transcendent truth, the truth of God, his economy, and what the Bible teaches us. 
Now, with that understanding, I'm going to blow your mind. There's another use of this word true, alethes, in the New Testament, and its usage is very different from that of transcendent truth, the truth of God that comes from outside of time and space. It's the truth of one's own experience and perceptions within time and space, what I call personal truth. So when you do a word study of this word true that we're asked to develop our attitude around in the New Testament, most of the usages are about transcendent truth, but there's a few usages that aren't talking about transcendent truth. They're talking about personal truth. Let me show you what I mean. You see, personal truth is a truth of one's own experience. It's not absolute and unchanging. It's certainly not transcendent, but think about me. It's true nonetheless. So look at how the New Testament will use this word, alethes. In John 4, verses 17 and 18, Jesus is interacting with the woman at the well. Many of you remember that story. And it says this, the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying you've had no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Guess what word that is in the original Greek? (laughs) Alethes. What's going on there? Is the fact that this woman has had five husbands a transcendent truth? Of course not. It's true for her. It's true in her experience. It is necessarily true, but it's not transcendently truth. It's what I would call a personal truth. It's trapped in time and space within her circumstances. Then we see it again. Look at Acts 12, verse 9. This is the account of when the angel sprung Peter from jail. Some of you remember that story. And it says, he, Peter, went out and followed him, the angel. He did not know that what was being done to him by the angel was real, same Greek word, alethes, but thought he was seeing a vision. So again, we almost see it in reverse here. Peter is doubting his personal truth here, wondering if it's really real, but it is. He's going to see in a second here that it really is happening to him. But again, it's a different use of this word true. It's talking about personal truth. Now, here's why this distinction is so important to realize. And again, I know this is heady for some of us, but we're going to put all this together in just a minute here when it comes to our attitude. But here's what you need to see, and this is very important. All transcendent truth is indeed reality. We have seen that. We just need to tap into it. But not all perceived or stated personal truth is necessarily reality. This is going to be really important for us when we put our attitude together here around this word true in just a minute. All transcendent truth is reality, but not all perceived or even stated personal truth is necessarily reality. In other words, we know that if we discover and experience transcendent truth, we're experiencing that which is real. But think about it, when it comes to personal truth, it might be real, transcendent or not, but it also might not be. So think about it with me, guys. When you and I call something personally true for us, and we do it all the time, we do it every day in big ways and small ways, we say, this is my reality, that which we believe to be real within time of space, really only one of three things could possibly be happening when we claim something to be true for us. First, our personal truth could be real and true indeed for a select time and space. In other words, it really could be personally true for us. 
So again, like the woman who had five husbands, that's what Jesus was affirming. He's saying, yeah, you've been married five times like you're giving Elizabeth Taylor a run for her money, and that's true for you. That is indeed your alatheis, your personal experience. Or if I say my Nissan car is silver and has no rust, that is true for me. But let me ask you, is that a transcendent truth? Is that a truth outside of time and space? Of course it's not. Is that a truth that's unchanging and absolute? Of course it's not. I could take my Nissan car to Cleveland next month and it would rust within a month. And then it would no longer be rust-free. Are you seeing this? So that's a personal truth and it's accurate and it makes it personal because it's trapped within time and space. But then think about it with me. When somebody says that something is personally true for them, a second thing could be happening whenever anybody says that. And that is that our personal truth could be perceptually true, but not really true. I I mean, Peter experienced a personal truth of being rescued from jail by an angel, but he actually doubted his perceptions and doubted whether his personal truth was real. And I would say that you and I experience this all the time, but in reverse. We claim something to be personally true, when in all reality, everybody and his brother around us is saying, it's not. So let me give you an example. If, I, if you and I are having coffee today, it's playoff season. We're having coffee today after the service. And I just casually said to you, you know what? Uh, in my personal truth system, I think the Cleveland Browns are hands down the best f- football team in the NFL. Uh, what would you say to me if I made a statement like that? For those of you who might be really close to me, you'd say, well, <laughs> you're wrong. You'd say, I got to tell you, they're not in the playoffs. There's no way that they're the best NFL team in in, in football right now. You you might say, Jamie, that might be, you know, something you perceive within your worldview, but factually speaking, you're not accurate. And I need you to hang on to this, what I'm going to call door number two here, guys, because I'm telling you, I think we do this a lot more often than we give credit to. So uh, when we're claiming personal truth, our personal truth could be true or it could not be true. And then there's a third option here, and that is that our personal truth could be an experienced transcendent truth. And again, this is going to be really important for us here in just a second Because what sometimes happens is that you and I claim something to be personally true for us, and here's what we then realize. It's not just true within our own time and space, and we're not off base. This is actually a transcendent truth that we're experiencing on a personal level through our belief and trust in God. I had an amazing thing happen to a friend of mine uh, this week. He was a a businessman going on a business trip on Tuesday over to California. And and as he was going on this business trip, coming back late that night, he was also waiting for a phone call from his doctor, uh, a report from a recent biopsy. And my friend got on the plane that morning and he went to California and they had some bad weather there. And the plane circled the airport a few times and he said this has never happened to him, but they said the weather doesn't look like it's going to clear, so we're going back to Phoenix. They weren't going to try to go to another airport, they were just bringing the plane back to Phoenix. And he was kind of bummed out because he had some business to do there, but he landed back here in Phoenix. As he got off the plane, uh, he got a phone call from his doctor. And the doctor said, I I know you might not want to hear this, but it's not good news. The biopsy is not. And my friend received this news. 
At that point, he went to work for a few hours, but then he was able to come home early and share this news with his wife, and they were able to start processing it together. And then they realized that it was Tuesday night, and they had their small group. Remember, we talked about small groups earlier, and they're really close to their small group. And so they made sure they got the small group, and they shared it with their small group, and they all prayed together and processed this together as a small group. And as my friend was telling me this story, he said, you know, Jamie, what I experienced on Tuesday here is that even in the midst of bad news, even in the midst of being, you know, not being able to get into the, the airport I needed to get into, I experienced the goodness of God. He is so good to take a, a failed business trip, get me back to Phoenix where he knew I needed to be, get the phone call, process it with my wife, and then process it with some other Christians who love me. And he said to me once again, God is so good. Now, let me ask you a question as you think about that experience that my friend has. Has he experienced that transcendent truth? Did he read about it in the Bible that day? No. Did he hear a pastor say to him, God is good? No. He experienced it in his personal life, and in experiencing this personal truth, he was intersecting with a transcendent truth in who God really is. And that's sometimes what happens when we claim something is personally true for us. What we need to see is it's not just truth within time and space. We're actually tapping into transcendent truth. And as I'm going to suggest to you in a minute, it's a game changer. So the point is this. All transcendent truth can become personal truth. In other words, we can believe it and experience it on our own. But not everything that we call personal truth is transcendent in nature or even real. Now, why is this distinction so important? Aside from being biblically accurate, aletheis, why is it important that we carry this distinction of transcendent truth and personal truth around in our hearts and minds, and how in the world does this affect our attitude? In our time remaining this morning, I want to share with you three profound implications and applications of this challenge to live and think in light of reality, known reality, whether it's transcendent or personal. And here's the first one. This distinction grounds us in what is. It grounds us in what is. In other words, don't miss this, guys. Learning to discipline our minds on a daily basis to recognize, focus on, and honor both transcendent reality and personal reality. In other words, the reality of God, as well as the reality of what we experience in this fallen world, will keep our lives centered on the true nature of life in all of its fullness, physically, emotionally, intellectually, relationally, and certainly spiritually. In other words, learning to think and live in light of what is true. Philippians 4.8, the first challenge here, will do nothing but ground you in what actually is life in all its fullness. Good and bad, ups and downs, excitement and mundane, transcendent as well as imminent, your personal experience now. And the way that this works is that when you learn to discipline your heart and mind to not shy away from what is true on a daily basis, all the while making a distinction between, and even correlation between transcendent and personal truth, 
What happens is, is that many times the personal is going to intersect with the transcendent. Why? Because both are on your radar. And I'm telling you, whenever God's reality meets your reality, spiritual sparks fly. Amen? Let's take another run at that. Whenever God's reality meets your reality, spiritual sparks fly. Amen? Some of you need to experience this more. And that's exactly what this attitude here is trying to get at. I mean, think about it, guys. This is exactly what was happening with the woman at the well in John 4 that we referenced earlier. As we noted, she has a personal truth that Jesus honored. She's had five husbands. She's a Samaritan outcast. She's a woman in the first century, which was not easy. And she's living in sin. Jesus says, the guy that you're with right now, you're not even married to. And Jesus, interestingly, calls this her truth, her aletheis. Now, in this context, however, don't miss that she's also interacting with Jesus, whom we have seen is the carrier and embodiment of transcendent truth. So what's going on in this setting here is that her personal truth is now colliding with transcendent truth, Jesus himself. And sure enough, as she begins to interact with him, uh, she begins to discover and experience life as the transcendent now interacts with the personal. Jesus says, I'm looking for worshipers who can worship me in spirit and in truth. And you know what this lady does? She goes back to her Samaritan friends and says, could this be the one? Could this be the guy that our souls have been longing for? And it says that many Samaritans came and believed in Jesus, and the implication is, so did this woman. And that's the point. When we allow our minds to focus on truth and reality in all of its transcendent and personal fullness, God is in this. And certainly we're in it because our lives are a mess and we're aware of that. And as the two begin to meet, before you know it, life that your very soul has longed for is now becoming attainable and experienced. You see, I think this happens to us more often than we realize. It just passes us by too quickly. Uh, last Sunday after the service, I was uh, noticed one of our, our dear people in the church here that I've gotten to know fairly well over the years didn't look very well. And so I came up to her and I said, what's going on? And she shared with me that it was a really rough week at work, that there were some things that happened that could threaten her very job. And, and as she was saying this with me and kind of really, you know, focused on this and pretty upset by this, she, she shared with me a struggle. I don't even know if she knew she was sharing a struggle, but I sure picked up on it because I see it all the time. And, and the struggle was this. She said, Jamie, I know that God is faithful. I know that he is sovereign. I know that he's in control of my life. And I, and I know that, that, that he is good. She said, but this fear is so real. And in an email later this week, she said to me, and I quote, it feels so huge. Let me ask you guys a question. Have you ever been there? Have you ever experienced that? <laughs> I think all of us have. When we get to the point in life where we're in the battle, I mean, we know what the truth is. We know transcendent truth. We've been around that block plenty of times, but now we have a personal reality that is literally facing us, and it is real, and it is scary, and you're in a battle. And I got to tell you, I think that's exactly where God wants you. Don't ever, ever feel ashamed or shy to say you're wrestling with that one. Amen? That's a good place to be. 
And Larry Crabb gives the definition of sanctification this way. He says it's a God-obsessed life that learns to fight the battle well. And that's where the battle is. Your pastor experiences it every day. I know what the truth is. God is good and he's revealed transcendent truth to me in his word and through many of my experiences. But when I face a demon or a monster in my life, there's a battle that starts at that moment. And God applauds the fact that you're in the battle because you're facing what is real. Amen? That's real. Whatever is true, think about these things. And one of the very first things you get to experience in the realm of this new attitude that you're developing here is truth in all of its fullness, personally for you, as well as transcendently. It's what is, and it grounds you in what is. Now, here's a second thing that this distinction does for us, and some of you aren't going to like this, and you can send me emails on it later, and I'll ignore them, but this is it, and that is that it keeps us from becoming depressingly negative and or dangerously positive. I actually had this worded differently on Thursday when I was coming up with my outline, but I changed it. I initially wrote, this keeps us from becoming depressingly negative and or nauseatingly positive. (laughs) But I didn't think you'd know how to spell nauseatingly because I didn't either, and so I changed it to dangerously. But you get the idea. Here's what I'm getting at here. Learning to face reality head on, both personal reality and transcendent reality, your reality and God's reality, helps you find balance in what we talked about earlier, namely this tendency that Christians have to either lean unhealthily toward negative or lean unhealthily toward a, what I would call, dangerously positive attitude. And it does this because when you have as part of your daily attitude a focus on what is true in all of its raw transcendence and imminence, it keeps you focused, as we've seen, on what is. And this is going to help you from going to the unhealthy extremes of either fatalism on one end or or a very unhealthy idealism on the other end that sets you up for disappointment. So here's how this works. Say you get the bad news this week about cancer, but because you have an attitude of focusing on what is true, you don't sugarcoat it because it is potentially bad and it is your personal reality. It's what is true right now about your circumstance and being a courageous Christian, you look that straight in the face. But at the same time, simultaneously, you realize that God in Jesus is worth placing your faith in, that he is good and powerful and that many people defeat cancer, and that even if you don't make it, the worst that's going to happen to you as a follower of Jesus is that you're going to die and go to heaven. And as Paul the Apostle says, for me to live as Christ, to die is so that's the worst that's going to happen to you. And I got to tell you, when you have an attitude like that, whatever is true, there's no stopping you. I mean, as Jesus says, they can kill the body, but they can't kill the soul. They can't touch you when you begin to think like that. Or how about this example? One of your kids goes off the deep end and starts struggling with some serious stuff like rebellion, alcohol, drugs, sex, or even uh, a severe depression. And again, because you're grounded in reality, you don't make light of this. I mean, I got lots of parents that come to me at times when their kids are struggling with this, and one of them's taking it seriously. You know what the other parent's saying? They're saying, well, lots of kids go through this. It's just part of being a teenager. I think to myself, what planet are you living on? This is not part of being a teenager. I mean, maybe it is, but it's not what God wants. But you're not going to see it that way because you're grounded in reality. So you take this very seriously and admit that this could alter your kid's life for years on end. 
But then you also dig deep into the transcendent reality that is before you. You realize that God made your kid, that he knows and loves your kid more than you ever could. And you further realize that things like prayer and counseling and intervention and even boundaries, all things found in the Bible, could be a game changer for your kid as you tap into that transcendent truth. So don't miss this, guys. Because you have an attitude that focuses on what is true in all of its goodness and badness, in all of its godly transcendence as well as its sinful imminence, you find yourself centered, even stable, even in the most difficult circumstances. Now, I'm telling you, this fits in every struggle you have in life. Financial struggles, emotional struggles, marital problems, job issues, even spiritual quandaries and doubts. They surely fit within this attitude of focusing on what is true and real, personally as well as transcendently. And yet, here's the deal. And some of you are already sensing this and feeling this, and I applaud you for it. You're realizing that this is hard. Amen? This isn't for the faint-hearted. It's not for the weak-minded. And as Jesus says, it surely is not for those of little faith. This is very hard to achieve, primarily because it involves you facing your demons head-on and not putting your head in the sand as so many Christians tend to do. But then it also involves kicking in your faith what Brennan Manning called a ruthless trust and defying all the odds, trusting in God and his transcendent truth to come through for you. That's why this is so difficult. And at least for me, I've been a Christian almost 35 years, and I'm still getting going on this one. It's an attitude that takes a lifetime to learn, but so worth it in the end. So learning to live in light of known reality grounds us in what is. It keeps us from becoming danger or depressingly negative or dangerously positive. And then thirdly, but oh so important, and with this we're done, this distinction should keep us open and humble in our daily attitude. Now you're saying, how does that work? Do you remember a few minutes ago when I was clarifying the three possibilities of what is going on whenever you and I declare something to be personally true or real for us? I got to tell you, I'm good at reading crowds after all these years of preaching, and I can tell you right now, some of you were zoning out during that explanation. I could tell by the glazed look on your eyes in which you were thinking about lunch or something like that, but because it's so important, let's review it right now. Here's what I said. I said that this could be personally true for you when you claim something to be personally true. In other words, within time and space, it actually is true. My Nissan is silver and it has no rust. But then secondly, I said it could be perceptually true, but not really true. Again, the Browns are the best team in the NFL. Not really true, even though I claim that to be personally true. And then thirdly, I said it could be personal truth experienced as transcendent truth. God is good and my friends experienced the other day. Now, here's why this trifold understanding of the potential options of personal truth is so key. And that is there are plenty of times, more often than we think, where you and I settle for door number two and we don't even realize it. In other words, we label something to be personally true for us and we're convinced that it is when it's not and your wife knows it, your good friends know it, your kids know it, your coworkers know it. Obviously, God knows it. You're the only one who doesn't know it. And you're saying, I don't do that very often. Yes, you do. 
Here's how I know this. Tell me if you can't relate to these scenarios. We're in a fight with our spouse. We feel completely justified in our position. Uh, In other words, they're wrong and, and, and we're right. Only to realize later how stubborn, pig-headed, and wrong we were. Has that ever happened to you? Raise your hand if it has. Every man better have his hand up right now. Wayne, get your hand up. Good. Because it does happen to us. It does. And you know what that should teach us? Is that it's possible. There are times when you and I are claiming personal truth and we're blind. We're actually not right about it. Or how about this one? This has happened to me a lot. We're arguing with a friend about a political view or even a theological position that we have. And there is no way we'd ever consider ourselves wrong. It's our personal reality. We're tapping into transcendent reality, and we are right. Only to have a few years go by, and you grow as a Christian in your worldview, and you realize, looking back, how narrow-minded and even foolish you were. Has that ever happened to you? sure happens to me. Every new season in life, I'm almost embarrassed about some of the things that I argued about 10 years ago. What's that about? Well, it's my propensity to label something personally true and and to have it really be not. Or how about this one? I love this one. Say say you are convinced that your boss at work is unfair and an actual dope and that he or she doesn't make very good decisions. And, And because of that, you've copped an attitude toward your boss. I know Christians don't do things like that, but just go with me on it. You cop an attitude toward your boss only to have now your boss make a couple of key decisions that go your way, and you find yourself saying, you know what, he or she really is kind of smart. They really are kind of good. Again, it just shows that we can be a little bit off base in our judgments. And here's the deal. Because of this, I think that one of the implications of you and me being men and women who have an attitude that is focused on what is true making a biblical distinction between transcendent truth and personal truth is that we need to be a lot more open than we are that our personal truth just might be off base and not as rock solid as we might think. Or to put it more positively and differently, we need to cling to transcendent truth, the truth of God like a drowning man clinging to driftwood. Amen? Because that's where our bread and butter is found. But I think we need to be much more open-handed and humble about all the personal truth we run around declaring to our friends and family. Because I'm telling you, if you can make this a part of your attitude, here's what I know to be true. Your friends and family will like being around you a lot more because you're going to be easier to get along with. And here's the real uh, beauty of this, is that God says in his word that he opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So isn't that one awesome? Whenever you and I develop humility, open-handedness with things like that, God is honored in that. You know, I'm, I'm seen in this church, and I, and I am as a guy who doesn't mind making tough decisions, doesn't mind leading strong, all of that stuff. But you know, over the last decade, I found myself in almost every meeting I'm in in which we're making a tough decision and I weigh in on it, beginning my words with this phrase. I say, you know what, I might be wrong, but here is what I think. I say that quite often. I say it when I'm arguing with Kim. (laughs) It actually works. When I say to her, you know, I, I, I might be wrong, honey, but here is what I think. And I've actually shared with our elders that that in my decision-making, I'm usually, in my mind, pretty much convinced that I'm 90% right. I mean, I'm a strong decision-maker. But here's what somebody shared with me a few years ago, actually a decade ago. He said, yeah, but you might be 10% wrong, and you don't give enough credence to that as you should. You need to be more open, Jamie, to the fact that in a plurality of elders, a plurality, plurality, a lot of staff, (laughs) 
a wife who's very godly and smart, that, that, that just maybe in all of your wonderful wisdom, your personal truth, you're not right. So I've learned to actually make a part of my worldview, hey, I very well might be wrong, but here is what I think. I, I think more of us need to start thinking like that. Warren Wiersbe is a wonderful, wonderful pastor of the last century, very wise, uh, very real. He said this at one point. He said, a realist is an idealist who has gone through the fire and been purified. (laughs) A skeptic is an idealist who has gone through the fire and been burned. You see, you and I are going to go through the fire no matter what. That's just part of living in a fallen world. God defines the fire that he has for us to be the kind of fire that's a purifying fire. But the only way it will be purifying is if you get your attitude right. And part of getting your attitude right is learning to think what is true, aletheis, in all of its transcendent and personal reality, clinging to transcendence, but realizing that there's a few options with personal reality, and let's be a little bit more open than we are. And by all means, let's join personal reality with transcendent reality. That'll make you a realist. And I believe that's what God wants for us. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, think about such things. Why don't you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness and for your grace that has been lavished upon us through Jesus Christ, through the power of your indwelling spirit, through the giving of your word, as we've seen today, Lord, even for the truth that you reserve for us. And I pray, God, that as we are believers here today and in our venues and campuses that desperately want to have an attitude befitting of a follower of Jesus, that, Lord, as we begin with this idea of true, that you would burn this into our minds and hearts, that, God, we would carry with us, even into this week, this idea of transcendent as well as personal truth, and that, Lord, you would allow your transcendent truth, which we so believe is real, to be more a part of our personal reality each moment of each day. Lord, may we have experiences like my friend did this week in which we can look back and say, God is so good. And God, I pray too that we would be open-handed and humble followers of Jesus. That Lord, when it comes to our personal truth, we'd be more open than we are, that we choose door number two more often than we think. And that Lord, in that humility, you might be honored And that, Lord, you also might be revealing more and more to us about who you are and what our lives are about. God, thanks for your word. Thanks for the direction that gives us. Thank you for the indwelling of your spirit who empowers us to live these things out. And I pray this in Christ's name and we all say together, amen.